Howdy how, this is Aswi and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what is up everybody? I'm Anushan and we are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Today, I got with me Aswi. Howdy how. I got AC. What's up, guys? And we have Eric. Yes, sir. So, as you guys know, we are less than a month away from the NBA playoffs, and we decided to do a pretty interesting episode ranking our top 15 NBA players who we think are going to show out in this year's playoffs. So, each of us made our own list, and none of us have seen the list that everyone else has made, so we're going into this pretty blind. So as you hear it, we are also going to be hearing it from everyone else. And I don't know, it's going to be extremely incredible. I'm super hyped for this episode. And I'm going to pass it over to AC, who's going to just explain the rules and the breakdown of what's going to go on today. Yeah, so as Anu said, this is a ranking for this year's upcoming playoffs. It's not a list of who we'd want to build a team around for the next 10 years. It's not a list of who we want for regular season basketball. This year's upcoming playoffs. And for the purpose of this exercise, we're going to assume that all the NBA players are available, but they're all going to be starting this playoffs fully healthy. That means for the purpose of this list, for instance, James Harden will have a fully healed hamstring. LeBron's high ankle sprain will be perfectly fine, etc. However, that does not necessarily mean that the players will stay healthy throughout the playoff run. So if any of us wanted to factor in the inability of certain players to stay healthy through playoff runs, say like Chris Paul or Joel Embiid, guys who've had trouble staying healthy for an entire playoff run, we are perfectly free to do so. Also, we are ranking the players here purely based on their ability as playoff players outside of the context of the teams that they're currently on. In other words, it's as if all the players are being judged in a vacuum. So it doesn't matter that Kyrie Irving's on a stack roster where this year he's probably not going to be the focus of the opposing team's defense. We're going to be judging him and everybody else based on how good he would be if he was a player on a random playoff roster. On the other hand, someone like Joel Embiid would unfairly be penalized for having to share the court with a non-shooter like Ben Simmons who needs the ball in the same spots as Embiid does. But apart from those rules, any of us are free to apply whatever criteria we want to come up with our rankings. So before we get to our list, I'm curious, guys, what sort of factors did you guys weigh when you made your list? Well, personally for me, The most important factor was a history of playoff success. Then one's statistical accomplishments in the playoffs. And third, someone's versatility. So I I did weigh guys who are not only elite offensive players, but can give you at least average to above average ability on the defensive end. As for me... I looked at everyone's playoff stats from their points, assists, rebounds, the traditional stuff. But I also looked at true shooting percentage, PER, usage, and box plus minus. And part of my decision making also was, for some people, have they been able to do it over a long stretch of time? And I also did when I was doing my research. I looked at key years such as that year they went to the finals or that was an MVP season for them things like that. I also take into account how the numbers of certain players who've been in less playoffs are a bit overstated, whereas players who've been to many playoffs 
might have numbers that are a little lower than that just because of the fact that they've had to maintain a certain level of greatness for a number of years rather than just one or two years. For me, I mean, there's so much to factor in because the playoffs are just a whole different beast. So, of course, as you guys all know, the playoffs are played at a much slower pace, meaning there's a much heavier focus on half-court basketball. So, players who are very good in running an offense, scoring in limited possessions, low turnover ratios, and players who don't really rely on getting to the free throw line for their offense are all things that I try to consider. Also, it's very important that a player is a great, but also, keyword being, efficient isolation scorer. Because there's going to be a lot of guys you need to throw the ball to and be like, hey, go get me a bucket. Because those guys are very important in the playoffs as we've seen over the years. It's also a premium to be able to score easy fast break points. So having players who can get critical stops or even better can force those fast break opportunities for their teams are just as valuable. Being clutch is really important between two playoff powerhouses. And usually games are decided between close margins. So even when a player is being heavily scouted, they still need to be able to be efficient and limit any sort of mistakes. Uh, I also factored in past playoff performances. It's vital to have guys who've been in that spot under excruciating pressure to perform at the highest levels. And that's why you have guys who are really good regular season performers, but they struggle in the playoffs because they're not used to being in those positions and being able to withstand that pressure. NBA championship experience is really important. It can't be understated because there's guys who have been in those spots who are able to mentor other players. You also need guys who are really well conditioned and It's obvious that players take on a much heavier load and burden in the postseason. So if you have a guy who's just huffing and wheezing up and down the court and can't play, then you're just really in trouble. Yeah, so as Anu said, playoff basketball is just fundamentally different from regular season basketball. And it's not just that the stakes are higher. I mean, that's obvious. But beyond that, the game is actually played differently. Referees tend to swallow their whistles. Teams have time to scout every weakness a player has. So personally, I weighed previous playoff performances much higher than regular season play. And especially play in this extremely odd compressed season that we're currently in, which I don't feel is particularly instructive. To me, offensive ability is far more important than defensive ability because the ability to generate offense against good playoff defenses that have time to scout you and your whole team's tendencies, that's the single most valuable skill in the NBA. Because even bad defenders can usually at least be passable with increased effort and attention to detail in the playoffs. That being said, defense does matter. And being a negative on defense will definitely drop you on my list. But being a bad defensive guard is much less of a problem than being a bad defensive center. Teams can help cover for poor defensive guards in a number of ways, but if your team has a poor defensive center, it pretty much means that you won't have a good enough defense no matter what. In fact, I can basically not think of a single team that has won it all with a truly below average starting defensive center. And the last factor for me is scheme versatility on both offense and defense. If you can only be useful playing one particular way, then that's a big knock against you in an exercise like this where there's no guarantee that the random playoff team you get will employ that style. And even if it does, being able to succeed playing only one type of scheme on offense or defense means that you limit your team's ability to be flexible and adaptable, which is a problem for playoff basketball. Like take a center that can only play drop coverage. That kind of center will be a liability against guards that can hit pull-up threes. Or take a guard like Russell Westbrook that can only play on the ball because of his inability to shoot or cut. In playoff games, teams will leave him open whenever he doesn't have the ball. Why don't we all share our top three? Because, I mean, we could go one through 15 with all our lists and it'll take forever. So it's it's in the interest of making this somewhat doable. Why don't we each 
give our relative tier. So I, I broke my list down as a top three, then I have a four through seven, eight and nine, okay. 10 through 13, 14 That's and 15. So, I mean, I'm sure you guys have ranked your list differently, but just for the sake of simplicity, why don't we all give our top three and then we could talk about that specifically. So Eric, who you got? Okay. So for me to start off my top three, and I, I think you guys know the vibe is LeBron. Number one, Kevin Durant, number two, and Kawhi Leonard, number three. Yeah, I'm on board with Eric here. I have that exact same order. I have LeBron at one, KD at two, and Kawhi at three. Same. Literally the exact three in the same order. Yep. Same here. Easy peasy. This was not scripted, guys. Like, again, we're going into this completely blind. We did not talk about it prior. It's just, I mean, it kind of is obvious, you know? Although I will say Eric does have a history of copying me when it comes to lists like this, so just keep aware of that. Everyone, just don't listen to Ossie. You know, there's rejoinders about whether I'm, you know, being a mime of him. He's lying. But no, seriously, guys, like, what was so easy about this top three? I think this top three has the greatest combination of A, playoff accomplishments, so a pass to recent history of killing it in the playoffs. And if you look at them historically and far as active players, if you look at advanced statistics, they are usually in the top five of most advanced uh, statistics of active players. And historically, they are the highest of current NBA players. So if you look at value above replacement level player, if you look at box plus minus, if you look at real plus minus, if you like PER for the playoffs, which I, admittedly I don't, they are all somewhere at the top of their class in current players in playoff performance. And then if you get into traditional counting stats, they're up there as well. Like, I mean, Kevin Durant is the current player who has the highest points per game. But LeBron is within like 0.2 decimal points and playoffs points per game behind Kevin Durant. Yeah, well, I mean, for starters, LeBron for me is a very obvious number one because, I mean, this man, there's a 58.8% chance of LeBron taking your team to the finals in a given season, right? He's more than earned his throne. It's pretty clear who number one is, right? You know, the king sits on his throne away from the rest of, you know, the commoners. So LeBron is the easy number one. He is the best player on any given team. Whenever he's on a team, even if they are a shitty Cavs team with Booby Gibson or Matthew Dellavedova as his second options, LeBron always makes you believe that his team can win in some way because he'll just lead both teams in every statistical category or something like that. And this season alone, he could have been MVP had he not had a entire human body diving right into his ankle. And he is the current reigning finals MVP. So therefore, for me, it's a no-brainer. LeBron's number one. Yeah, for me, I'm just there right with you. Like, LeBron is the modern-day GOAT for a reason. And, I mean, arguably, people will say he's the GOAT. He has four rings on his resume at this point, and we can easily say that he knows how to win at the highest level. He's as complete an NBA player in the playoffs as you need. He's clutched time and time again. He's hit big shots when they matter. And even more so than other players, he stepped up defensively in the clutch situations when it matters as well. 
he really is a matchup nightmare for teams who have a liability on the defensive end. I mean, we've seen it time and time again when the Lakers play. They always hunt for those weak defenders, and LeBron gets that switch, and he absolutely decimates them. He's a leader. He demands the best out of his teammates. And one thing that shouldn't go without saying is that he really is the definition of an Iron Man. He's played the most NBA playoff minutes at an absolutely ridiculous 10,811 minutes with the most games at 260, having absurd career averages. 29 points per game, 9 rebounds per game, 7 assists per game, with ridiculous 53% effective field goal percentage. It's just ridiculous. LeBron is for sure number one. Yeah, it's not a coincidence that this man has been the finals for 9 of the last 10 seasons. Like, let's start with his offense. Even as his athleticism has declined, he has adapted his game to still be as offensively efficient as ever before. In last year's playoffs alone, he averaged... 27.6 points per game, 10.8 rebounds per game, and 8.8 assists per game on 56% field goal percentage and 37% from three-point range. So he was good just a few months ago in the playoffs. He has the answer to every defensive scheme. If you want to trap him on a pick and roll, he has the size and the ability to pass right over the top of the defense to whoever is open. If you want to try to pack the paint so he doesn't drive, nobody has ever been better at reading the defense and firing a cross-court pass into the pocket of a shooter the minute you step away from that shooter. If you try to switch against him, as Anu said, he is the most ruthless switch hunter in the NBA. He will find the opponent's weakest defensive player over and over again. And if you try to drop back in the paint against him, like teams used to do when he was younger, he is capable enough of a shooter to punish that coverage, or he just uses that space to build up steam and attack the paint anyway. Or he slows down, lets his initial defender hang on his hip using his strength, and then he gets in the paint, daring the drop defender to challenge him. And if he does that, he makes that perfect little pocket pass or kicks out a three-point line. And the other thing is, let's not forget, whenever he wants to, he can get into the post where he can use either his pure power or as Anu will be very familiar with, being a Toronto fan, he can use his weirdly effective post fadeaway game. There's a reason that hashtag LeBron became a thing because he just hit fadeaway after fadeaway over the Raptors. And the difference between LeBron and many of the other post players, like, say, AD or Joel Embiid is, LeBron can just dribble into a post-up whenever he wants to. He doesn't need a post-entry feed. And again, unlike AD or Embiid, LeBron is an unbelievable post-passer. So you can't really double-team him there. You kind of have to live with him playing one-on-one. AC, that was Cole bringing up Anishan's trauma. I just (laughs) This is is supposed to be a safe space, guys. (laughs) And the thing you just did... Made my heart hurt for honest. So. <laughs> well, well, listen, like that memory is always something in the back of my brain and I try to keep it there. So whenever someone brings it up, it just rears its ugly head right back up at the center. So thank you, AC. I, I very much I, so appreciate it. I, I felt like the Ralph Wiggum meme of his heart breaking when Lisa said that she didn't want to be with him <laughs> at the Crusty the Clown uh, show. And and that's how I felt for Anishon. So, yeah, AC, not cool. Yeah, not cool, man. What the hell? Yeah, and it's not like he's a perfect offensive player. He does have one glaring weakness, which is his free throw shooting. I personally have zero faith in his ability to hit a clutch free throw. But that being said, it hasn't ever really seemed to cost him. I mean, any particular playoff games or series. So I don't see why I would now. But I'm just trying to bring up another point about LeBron, which is his defense. What's highly underrated about LeBron is that even at this stage of his career, he's a beast on the defensive end. We saw that in just last year's playoffs, he was able to switch on to the likes of Jamal Murray and kind of shut him down in the fourth quarter as a playoff game. 
But what really separates LeBron as a defender is that he's an incredible help defender in playoff series where he's giving max effort. When Lakers trap ball handlers like they did to Houston and Portland last year, LeBron is always there making that perfect rotation to the short roll man. And although he might not be thought of as a shot blocker, make no mistake, in the playoffs, LeBron will send your shot packing at the rim or at least force you to alter your shot. And, and I think a lot of players in the league are kind of scared at challenging LeBron at the rim. You see them kind of passing out of shots they should probably have tried to attempt over him. I specifically remember the 2016 finals. It seemed like LeBron stopped Draymond on short rolls time and again, and it also seemed to block Steph like a million times in that series. And a lot of this is because of his film room preparation and allegedly his photographic memory. There's so many stories by opposing coaches, such as Kof, Kof, Anishans, Dwayne Casey, and also players saying that LeBron called out their plays or even told them where to be on their schemes. So he's watching all of them. He tells them where they need to be. So if you combine this with his still above average athleticism, strength, and speed, it makes him a remarkable help defender in playoff situations. This is abuse of Anishan at this point and the Toronto Raptors fan base, and we're not going to take it. But... <laughs> <laughs> but being a valiant knight that that's going to be here to protect the Raptors fan base. I do want to say AC to piggyback onto like LeBron being incredibly like underrated and effective at contesting shots at the rim. One of the, the shots that I always think about when I, when I think about LeBron just like randomly being there to stop guys for easy putbacks or dunks. I still remember the, the 2013 NBA Finals against the Tiago Splitter. Yeah. Tiago Splitter. A, <laughs> yeah. a, a legit seven-footer who LeBron comes out of. It's, it's just like he's going up. He, he gathers for his dunk. and It's like the seven-footer is about to easily make this dunk. And LeBron flat-footed off the vert, jumps up, and with all hand, stops him at the highest point and rejects this dunk. While Tiago Splitter is in the course of cocking back and finishing the cockback on his dunk. So, yeah, LeBron's he's a manimal on defense when he needs to be in playoff like clutch situations. So what about KD? So we all had him number two. What is it that kind of made him universally our second best player on all of our lists, apparently? I mean, when you think about KD, have you ever seen an offensive weapon like him? I mean, he truly is the Slim Reaper. He can score from anywhere on the court. If he's guarded by a big, he could just go right around them because he can handle well and he's going to be very quick. And if he gets switched onto a smaller, like a guard or even most wings, well, he's taller than them, so he could just shoot right over them. Now, some people would argue that Kawhi belongs here over Durant, but thing about Durant is he's not afraid to just attack the hoop if it's open. Even this year, coming off his Achilles injury, how many plays have you guys seen of KD just beating his man and just going in for a dunk? He just looks and plays aggressively as hell on all three levels. And then when you think about his defensive capabilities, he's no claw, but he's a great defender in his own right. And let's not forget, the man averages 29 points per game in the playoffs. He has a true shooting percentage of 59.7. He is a master of getting to the line if he needs to, though quite honestly, he really doesn't. And among players on my list, he's one of the highest when it comes to box plus minus. When I look at basketball, sometimes I like to go outside of myself and think, 
and hypotheticals. And one of the hypotheticals I often ask myself, if a supreme basketball god created the ultimate score, how would that guy look? I'm thoroughly convinced he would look and have the attributes of Kevin Durant. So you're a guy who's a near seven footer who can take 25 foot jumpers. You're a guy who somehow is a, a, a near seven footer, if not a seven footer, we'll never actually figure that out, who somehow shoots 90% from the free throw line. You have a ridiculous mid range game, but at the same time, you're similar to a guy like Dirk Nowitzki in, in size dimensions outside of being leaner. And you also can play above the rim and you're surprisingly agile like a two guard. So, I mean, even outside of, of taking his stats, which right now for career playoff points per game, he's number two. If you take out the statistical accomplishments, he looks the part of a dominant, dominant, dominant score. And it just happens that he's a person who looks the part and he also happens to be a generational score. So on my list, the fact that his offense nine times out of 10 is going to dominate great defense Kevin Durant is an easy pick for me at number two. Quite simply, Kevin Durant has been the second best player of the last decade by a mile. He is the best scorer since Michael Jordan. He's more efficient than Kobe. He's more versatile as a scorer than LeBron James. He can pull up from 30. He can cross you up like a guard, blow by you, then dunk at the rim, as also we said. He can kill you at the free throw line, both in terms of his ability to get to the line, and also he's just an incredibly efficient free throw shooter. He can run around screens like he's Ray Allen. His high release at his height makes his shot virtually unblockable. He can basically dribble into a pull-up jumper whenever he wants to and not be bothered by whatever the defender does. And there's no scheme that can really stop him from doing that. To make an anime reference, if I had to take someone from Kuroko No Basket, as they call it, or Kuroko's Basketball, he's basically Aumine, the super scorer. There is no weakness in his game, and he has every move there is. What's so beautiful about his game is that he doesn't need the ball at all. In OKC, while Westbrook had the ball, Durant was content playing off the ball. He fit in seamlessly into Golden State's complex offense. Basically, no matter what team he's on, he can fit his offensive game to improve the effectiveness of other players around him. He doesn't need spacing to be at his best, like, say, someone like LeBron does, because he himself can provide elite spacing for another star, or he can have the ball in his hands, because, as we said, he absolutely murders switching schemes which, by the way, is the most common and successful playoff defensive scheme that's run in the NBA. He's just too tall for anyone little, too fast for anyone big. And if you want to double him, he's a capable and willing passer. He rarely forces the action against defenses that are trying to send doubles at him. He's not going to try some crazy Kobe shot against three people. That's not his game. And he makes the right read more often than not. And defensively, you guys kind of touched on this, but he has shown the ability in previous seasons to actually protect the rim. And he can switch onto wings and hold his own. I think the biggest question with KD, specifically this year, is whether he can still have that defensive impact following his Achilles injury. Certainly offensively, he looks like he hasn't lost a beat whatsoever. As else we mentioned, he's dunking over fools. But we've yet to see him really ask to play playoff caliber defense against a high caliber opponent where he has to make difficult rotations or defend elite players and switches or protect the rim. 
If he can still do all of that, then he may look like he did a couple of years ago, 2019, prior to his Achilles injury, where he had a legitimate argument to be considered the best player in the world. Yeah, I think all you guys encapsulated it very well. Just to add on a little bit, KD is just an absolute playoff animal. And he has a championship experience right now, right? Like he has the two rings to his name. Granted, yes, he played on Golden State, but he's still a champion nonetheless. Uh, it's a damn near impossible to scheme against him, as AC had alluded to, as Eric and us, we also said. He's one of the greatest isolation scorers of all time. You can't switch against him. There's no type of defensive coverage you can have in place for KD because, again, he just has all the attributes to play around those factors. You can't double him because he is a willing passer. I wouldn't say he's a great passer, but he's not some selfish player that needs the ball in his hands to be effective. And you can see that he learned a lot when he played in Golden State with how to move the ball, how to create open shots for someone else, how to just be kind of that vacuum to draw that attention and create for other people. For his career, he is a 31% usage player, and he has an insanely efficient shooting splits with effective field goal percentages of 53%. And like AC said, he's a player that in big moments, he's shown that he can step up defensively, which is a very important thing in the playoffs. You need guys who can make those those big plays, and we know what he can do on the offensive end in terms of his clutch performance and what he has shown that he can do playing on a stack Golden State Warriors team. But nonetheless, he has made the big shots when they counted. So for KD, it's a no-brainer, number two. So the third guy in all of our list was Kawhi Leonard. And I would say apart from Game 7 in last year's series against the Nuggets, he's been a remarkably consistent playoff performer. He has a higher career true shooting percentage at 61.4% than either LeBron or Durant, who we ranked above him on all three of our lists. On offense, like Durant, Kawhi does not need the balls in his hands to be an effective offensive player. He is a career 40% three-point shooter in playoff games. And he has the most balanced jump shot I've seen since Michael. Regardless of where he's on the court, he gets a perfectly squared up shot. And that's a huge reason that he's so consistent offensively. With respect to his defense, he's a former Defensive Player of the Year for a reason. He has massive Jordan-esque hands that make dribbling or passing anywhere near him fraught with danger. He's also strong, he's long, he makes multiple efforts. And while he's not quite the defensive player he used to be, he is still one of the premier wing defenders in the NBA and certainly one of the premier two-way players in the NBA. Still, there's a reason that I ranked him third behind LeBron and Durant because he does have two flaws that puts him below those two players, in my opinion. He's not nearly as effective as those guys at attacking the rim, which is something also alluded to in his discussion of Kevin Durant. And probably that's because he doesn't have the same athletic burst as they have. And this also translates to getting to the free throw line less consistently than they do. He's a 35.7% career playoff free throw attempt rate, which compares field goals attempted versus ability to actually get to the free throw line. That's 35.7 for him versus 46.5% for Durant and 43.4% for LeBron. This ultimately means that he's far more dependent than either of those guys on his jump shot, which, as we all know, no matter how good of a shooter you are, can fail you in a given playoff game. But the biggest difference between him and those two guys above him is that although he's made major strides as a passer, he's not in the same league as those guys in general when it comes to distributing the ball. He has a career playoff assist percentage of only 13.4% compared to 21.6% by Durant and a ridiculous 35.4% by LeBron. When I watch him play, especially in high leverage games, it seems to me that sometimes Kawhi misses basic reads. I thought this even in 2019 when he actually won a championship. There were still times in the finals where I was like, well, how could you not see that guy open? I mean, I'm not saying I could do that, but you know, at the highest level, you'd expect someone to be able to make some of these basic reads. That being said, in last season's playoff run, his assist percentage bumped up to 23.9%. So there are signs of improvement with him. 
So AC, you mentioned the free throw attempt rate when talking about Kawhi, and I have to say that's actually my favorite part about Kawhi's game. It's the pureness of it. When I think about Kawhi at his best, I'm thinking about his finals and ultimate championship run back in 2019 when, yes, he scored that terrible Game 7 dagger against my Sixers, but I just loved how his game did not need to go to drawing a million fouls to go to the free throw line the way that, say, Joel Embiid or James Harden do. His was just, I will get to my spot whether you like it or not, and I'm just going to shoot, and he has that perfect balanced shot, and I really love that. It doesn't matter so much to me if he's not drawing free throws, and yes, the problem is, if he's not making those shots, then they're in trouble, as you saw with the Clippers-Nuggets series last year. But the thing about Kawhi that I think keeps him in this upper echelon, you know, these top three, is the fact that he is a complete lockdown defender. And when it comes to just scoring, he's pretty much automatic. When I watch him, I'm genuinely surprised if he's even slightly open and he misses a shot. He just has this uncanny ability of scoring if he needs to. But again, like I said before, the fact that he doesn't attack the rim more, I think that's a knock on him. But again, like AC said, The fact that he's not as good of a creator as LeBron or Durant are puts him just below them, in my opinion. But still, he belongs in this upper class that is a little bit removed from the next tier, I I think. Yeah, just to add to Aswe, the dude is a ridiculous two-way player. And as AC actually alluded to, and what I actually thought when I was writing my notes for this, was he really does resemble MJ the most, especially in terms of these playoffs. He's a deadly three-level scorer who has probably the best mid-range shot in basketball right now. So it's easy to see that a skill like that can translate into his half-court game, where being able to make those difficult pull-up mid-range shots is very important. He can get you a stop when you need it the most. He usually guards the other team's best perimeter scorer. Like AC said, he's kind of lost a little bit of that defensive ability, but I still would like to believe that in clutch situations, he can get you that stop when he really needs to. People have argued time and time again that his Raptors playoff showing in the 2019 season was one of the best playoff runs in recent memory, where he averaged 31 points per game, 9 rebounds per game, and 4 assists on 52% effective field goal percentage. I think that... One of the only black marks you can really put on Kawhi is that Game 7 collapse against the Nuggets, but I also think a large part of that was just how awful his co-star pandemic was during those playoff series, so I don't really put as much stock into it as a lot of other people do, because like AC had said, even last year's playoff run, he played really well. I just think it was rather unfortunate that they ended up losing to the Nuggets. But for the most part, Kawhi is as good of a two-way player as they come. I think this year's playoffs, he's going to really do well. I hope that Kawhi can have a good bounce back from last year and go far in, in this year's playoffs because he really has all the tools right under LeBron and Kevin Durant to be in that sort of upper echelon of players. Shout out to Paul George for putting the COVID and coronavirus, but uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I, I'm I'm not gonna say too much about Kawhi because you all have pretty much covered everything that I think about him. The dude is some ungodly amalgamation of Gary Payton and Scottie Pippen on defense. When he's on, I do think 
age has regressed him somewhat and injuries. But that being said, and, and this was said earlier by you guys, the one thing I worry about Kawhi that I don't exactly worry about Kevin Durant and LeBron James, when his shot isn't going in, it seems to me that because he's not the creator that they are, he almost bogs the offense down in a way that Kevin, of course, who's not the passer that LeBron is, but he's such a much better creator than Kawhi. Kevin never has those type of issues. So Kawhi is an elite amongst elites. He's in the current echelon of players. He's a Mount Rushmore type guy. But that being said, I don't quite think he's as trustworthy to play through his limitations as the two guys above him. So then, guys, that brings us to our next tier of players. I, on my list, ranked the next group as four through seven. It may not be the same on all of your lists. You might have a tier that's like maybe two people or three people. But just for the sake of us discussing this, I'll go through my next four and you guys give me your next four. And you could tell me if you have them in a separate tier. So my next four, in order, I have number four, Steph Curry. Number five, Anthony Davis. Number six, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And number seven, somewhat of a surprise here, maybe, Luka Doncic. What do you guys got for your four through seven? Yeah, mine a little different than yours, Playboy. I got four, Anthony Davis. I got five, Jokic. I got six, Embiid. And I have seven, Wardell Curry. Interesting. All right. Well, I have Anthony Davis at four, Steph Curry at five, Giannis at six, and Chris Paul at seven. So from my four to seven, I have Jokic at four, I have Anthony Davis at five, I have Kyrie at six, and I have Steph at seven. Not Kyrie at six. (laughs) 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 Wait, wait, wait. Why do you up the ante like that? There there is a very good reason why he's at six. Hot take alert. This list just... Fucking no ball. Yeah, so we should definitely have a little hot take alert for that because I got to spoil it for you. I don't even have Kyrie Irving on my list. Really? Interesting. Anyone okay. in my top 15. No, he doesn't, he doesn't even make it. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll definitely have a discussion about this. All right, so what do we have in common, guys? I think the, the guys we have on all of our lists, so basically Oswe and I have AD and Steph reverse at 4-5, and you guys have Steph at number 7. So why don't we discuss each of these guys then before we get to the ones that are totally different on our list. So let's start with Anthony Davis, who's on every one of our lists in the top five. Why do you make your top five guys? I guess I'm supposed to do this because I'm a Lakers guy. Kind of nominal. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Tell us, <laughs> tell us why. I mean, he, he's a big reason y'all won last year. No question. Yeah, yeah, facts. So the thing I look at Anthony Davis, though he has sparse playoff experience when he has been in the playoffs, statistically as far as counting stats and statistically as far as advanced stats, he's been one of the league's best players in the top five. Like if you do like an aggregate, the only issue for Anthony Davis compared to other guys in the upper, upper echelon, he has a lot smaller resume. But then when you account for the fact that this is a four whose best position is the five and 
he somewhat plays in, well, he plays inside out and he somewhat spaces the floor and not to add his defensive versatility and defensive destructibility. I can't leave him out of my top five as far as playoff performers that I would want to have. The dude, when he is on and healthy, is a sublime, sublime player. So, yeah, I, I, I know I'm like on his jock, but the dude is a beast. You know, what's interesting is if I take everyone on my top 10 at least, Anthony Davis is arguably the single worst player at generating elite offense, which I mentioned before is one of the criteria that matter a lot to me. His passing is kind of rudimentary. He needs someone to generate good touches for him. And while he's a good post-up player, he isn't so dominant down there like someone like Embiid, where single coverage is never an option. He also takes a lot of unnecessarily difficult shots. His shot selection isn't always the best. That being said, he is arguably the best finisher in the game today. And while he benefits from playing with LeBron, he would be devastating if you pair him with just about any other winger guard on any of our lists. Per B-ball index, even in this down season where AD was seemingly out of shape and then got hurt, he was the best player in the league at scoring off of cuts. He was in the 99th percentile at scoring in transition. He was in the 95th percentile in his per possession impact as a role man in pick and rolls. He was in the 84th percentile in finishing dump offs. And in general, he has more per possession gravity at the rim than any other player in the NBA. And that's in this down season of his. In the playoffs, where he plays more at the five with space around him, that offensive effectiveness as a finisher is increased. He has a finesse to go around players and the athleticism to finish over them. His footwork and technique in nearly every aspect of the game is frankly extraordinary. Like if you watch Anthony Davis play, you can watch him have a pump fake and then drive by a defender with his body so low to the ground. And then just in the last second, he'll cross over the other way when the defender is shifting his weight to perfectly finish on the other side of the rim. He has that kind of skill and technique. He's also a good difficult shot maker. Right? He doesn't take the best shots, but he can make hard shots, which is very useful in the playoffs. The other thing I would say is he's a remarkably consistent playoff performer, as Eric said. In 34 career playoff games played, AD has only had an effective field goal percentage below 40% twice. So he's really consistent. That's a ridiculous number. That's 6%. To put it in perspective, guys like LeBron and Michael Jordan are at 12 and 13% respectively. And those are about as consistent as you can get in terms of playoff performance. What really makes him a top five player is his remarkably versatile defense. He is hands down the best defensive player in the NBA for playoff basketball. And it's because he not only plays the most important defensive position in the NBA at center, but he's so fast, long, and smart that he allows his team to run every single defensive scheme there is. Like, I can't think of a better big man than him at switching. Like, remember when he was in the Pelicans, he was able to switch on to someone like Steph Curry in the playoffs. He has the speed to hedge and recover like Chris Bosh, the length and timing to protect the rim in drop coverage like Rudy Gobert, and even the willingness to make long rotations to cover ground in a trapping scheme. You can even just flat out ask him to guard the other team's best perimeter player, and he will take that assignment and make life a living hell for that poor guy. We saw that just in last year's NBA Finals, where in certain games, he was the primary assignment on Jimmy Butler. And frankly, he didn't shy away from that challenge and was able to slow him down here and there. Yeah, I mean, AC, you have like all the points that I was just going to say. <laughs> just take everything from me. But uh, yeah, he, he's a monster on defense. Like, it, it's honestly ridiculous. It, it, his defense is like transcendent almost. 
You can run any defensive set with AD. And because he's a premier shot blocker, it makes it hard to just go at him in a one-on-one situation. And frankly, I think players are scared to even do that. There are very few players that want to actually challenge AD when it comes to attempting to score on him. I mean, not only that, but you also alluded to this. He's a great offensive player who, like, unlike a lot of the modern-day big men, he can score with his back to the basket. Now, you're right. He's not as potent as a Embiid or a Jokic, for that matter, but he has the good footwork to play in the low post. And one thing that he has that a lot of other players don't have is a very good face-up game. He can face you up, turn around, and dribble the ball and get to the basket. The only thing that he really does struggle with is that ability to pass out of double teams. He's shown a very, like, one, an unwillingness to pass, but also not being able to make the correct read or even, like, a basic pass. Like, he'll throw it and some guy will, like, try to fumble the ball. So it's not really a good thing in playoff basketball to have that. But again... The combination of his offense and defense, plus being an elite lob threat, probably the best in the NBA, is what posits Anthony Davis for me in my list at number five spot. So in my spreadsheet, where I basically collected data of 14 of the players on my list, leaving LeBron out because I don't want to compare him to these you know, other folks. Anthony Davis ranked number one in PER. <laughs> blocks true shooting percentage and field goal percentage in the playoffs and also was in top five in a number of categories whether it was points rebounds box plus minus the numbers are just there anthony davis is so clearly a top player in this league a top five i put him as four because he is able to impact the game in so many ways because of the versatility of his skills. I remember watching a Sixers game this past week and AC texted me talking about, you see how on a pick and roll and Embiid can't meet the guy, he has to kind of drop. Anthony Davis doesn't need to do that. He has such great footwork and is so fast that he's able to guard those guys just as AC mentioned. And so the reason why I have Davis over Curry is really because Davis's defense is so good and then when you look at his offensive abilities, I'm someone who, while I recognize that he's not the offensive player that the other guys in my top five, whether LeBron, Durant, Leonard, or Steph, he's not an offensive player like they are, but he has such a broad ability on the defensive end that I think cements him there in that position. And because it's not like he's a terrible offensive player in his own right, I mean, he has a higher playoff average than Steph does on points. So with that combination of his offensive and defensive ability, I think it's a pretty easy number four for me to put him there, even over Steph. Also, you have just persuaded me to swap my number four Steph Curry with my number five, Anthony Davis. Officially, my first list swap is happening right now. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) That being said, guys, Oswe and I now both have Steph Curry at number five, and you guys have him at number seven. So why don't we go through why we have him where we have him? So, Eric, let's start with you. Why do you have him at number seven? So the fact that Steph Curry is in the top ten of any potential playoff performer means that He's like a legendarily great player, definitely in a league right now where he's past 30 and this league has legit talent, one through 30 guys you want to choose from who are in the who's who of NBA guys. So putting him at seven is not any type of knock against stuff. But what I will say for me personally I will always look at the fact that on 
every historically great team in which he's played on quite a few at this point, when it mattered most, he wasn't the seminal performer of his team series. So his stats are very, very good in the playoffs. But Steph Curry, of course, when he played with in the first finals, he Andre Iguodala won a finals MVP, which some of it was because, I mean, he made LeBron work or some logic like that. And Steph didn't actually mimic his regular season MVP totals. But then in subsequent finals, he wasn't the best player on his team as well when when his team won, and that was Kevin Durant. So for me, that's always going to be something I remember. And then when you put that in conjunction with the fact that he isn't really, I wouldn't even say average defender. I would say at times he's been below average. And at times they've had to hide him, depending on the team that he plays. So stuff like, and I think this year we have a premium on big guys because the league more and more goes small. I can just think of a couple of big guys that I would rather have right before him in the current playoff situation. So again, that's no knock against stuff. I think seven is still like your crumb de la crumb type dude. For all the reasons that Eric said, I think he encapsulated it the same way that I would have really. Just to add, however, I mean, let's say how it is. He's the greatest shooter of all time. And there's no player that has had the gravity that he's had ever. I mean, you have to guard this guy like at the half court line. Like it's ridiculous. And that combination of being one of the most ridiculous shot makers, coupled with his ability to handle the ball and finish at the rim, make him as good of a scorer as any. One thing I would say about him is that he isn't necessarily a great clutch performer, or at least his playoff performances don't really illustrate this. So that is something that is, in my opinion, at least it's a bit of a knock against him because without showing that ability to get a key and clutch basket when it really counts is something that is very important in playoff basketball. And not being able to do that is a very bad thing, I I would like to think. And like Eric alluded to, he isn't a great defender. In fact, he's probably below average, as Erica said. He does average fairly high steal numbers, but that's also because the defensive schemes are kind of put in place to give him those opportunities where he kind of just cheats and jumps the lane a lot of the time to try to get those steals. So he's not even making, like, I would say good defensive reads. They're like more like gambles in order for him to get his steals, but that's because the defense is sort of centered on wanting to take those chances. So for those reasons, I would say that Steph is. A great player, and being seven, like Eric said, is not a knock. It's actually very good to be at that that sort of point on our list. So for those reasons, that's why Steph is in my top seven. I think you guys are really selling him short in a number of ways. You guys are right. I mean, he is the greatest shooter in the history of the league, and I almost feel like you're undervaluing just how incredible that ability is because he was the main offensive engine of a team that shattered playoff records for efficiency and went to four straight NBA Finals. And among some circles, he has the reputation as a playoff choker, which I guess Undershawn kind of alluded to there. I feel this is totally off base. While he's notably had a few NBA finals where he wasn't quite at his best, he actually has been a remarkably reliable playoff performer. He has a career playoff true shooting percentage of 60.9%, 
but is absurd and higher than the likes of Kevin Durant and LeBron James. He has a career playoff three-point shooting percentage of 40.1%, which given the volume and difficulty of his attempts is pretty amazing. But I think even that undersells his real value. He's an unselfish superstar that is content to play off the ball and do all the dirty work like set screens and also run hard off the ball around screens for plays to set up other people. You could pair him with any other player on any of our lists and he would make them better. And his willingness to move the ball once he passes it differentiates him from the likes of James Harden or Damian Lillard. Because it's difficult to trap Steph. Because if you trap him, he'll get rid of the ball, pass the short roll to someone like, say, Draymond, and then he'd relocate somewhere else to generate offense for others. And as Anu alluded to, he has incredible gravity. So that generates so much offense. On the other end, people like Lillard and Harden, they might make the right initial read to create the four on three after a trap. They'll pass to the open guy, but they don't keep moving afterward. In fact, they just stay there. Harden in particular is really poor off the ball and basically needs the ball in his hands to be effective. But both Eric and Anu, you mentioned his defense. I agree that he's probably a below average defender relative to all NBA players. But I think that you can make a a legitimate case that he's arguably above average or at worst average relative to his actual position. He's way better defensive than the likes of Damian Lillard, Kemba Walker, or Kyrie Irving, for instance. And there's a couple of reasons for this. He's actually 6'3", and he's much bigger than someone like Kemba or Lillard. He's gotten a lot stronger. He's actually bulked up considerably even since the 2016 finals. And honestly, you think he gambles a lot. I I don't think that's actually at all what he does. If anything, he's in the right place. More often than not, he executes the right schemes and at least gives effort consistently, unlike someone like Kyrie Irving. And he's a threat to get steals and even led the league in steals one season. And yes, I agree with Anu that that's in part because he had great defensive personnel around him. But I think that he also is in the right place in those schemes, which is not something you can say for a lot of point guards. And sure, elite ISO players like a LeBron or a Kyrie can target him repeatedly like they did in the 2016 NBA Finals. But personally, I always thought that was less about Steph's weaknesses as a defender and more about how great the defenders around him were. If the opposing team is going to switch everything, you have to target somebody and better target Steph than to target, say, Iguodala or Klay Thompson or Draymond. The other thing is he's just a guard. So him being not the most over-the-top defensive player as a guard isn't the same problem as him having that same weakness as a center. You could still have an elite team defense around him, as has been proven in his many years in Golden State. He's not quite in the LeBron, Durant, or Kawhi tier, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, regardless of his skill, he's only just 6'3 in a sport where being tall matters. And at the highest levels against elite teams, such as in the NBA Finals, his effectiveness as an offensive player can be limited by defenses that are keyed on him, partly because at his size, he can't physically impose his will against any scheme. Like for in 2016 Finals, he couldn't consistently beat switches, which is a big reason why the Warriors added Durant, who literally kills switches. And also, unlike LeBron, Durant, and Kawhi, he doesn't add any other value defensively. But against really almost anybody else in the NBA... He's so good offensively, and being a point guard, he's good enough defensively that I don't see how you can rank anybody else above him. So on the point of there being a demarcation between Steph Curry and Dame Lillard slash James Harden, I absolutely agree with you. I didn't put those two guys above Steph Curry. I put two bigs in in Embiid and Jokic above him. Right, well, Anu over here put Kyrie Irving over him, who I think, objectively speaking, statistically speaking, watching film, watching stats, whatever you want to break it down, Steph's a better defender than Kyrie Irving. So 
Uh, that, was, that was a hot take of hot takes. <laughs> point taken, point taken. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the, the my point being that if you're comparing other guards at his position, even if you say he's not a great defender versus the rest of the NBA, but comparing to wings, he's still like a solid defender who's not going to beat you on that end. And he's so good offensively that it almost overrides whatever he, issues he may bring defensively. And I would argue as a guard, it's kind of limited what the downside of having someone like him really is. That's fair. All right, so... Let's go through some of the other players that made our top seven that weren't on all of our lists, because at least all of us had AD or Steph somewhere on our list. So, Anu, you put Nikola Jokic, and you named him number four. Eric, you had Jokic number five. Neither us, we or I had Jokic at all. At least not in our top seven. I, I'm, he's on my list, not far after that, and I, I'm assuming he's on us, we's list. So, maybe you guys could tell us why he's in your top seven, and maybe us, we, and I could tell us why he's not quite that high on our list. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, when I watched Jokic in past playoff performances, but especially in last year's playoffs, he was just an absolute monster. I mean, we've seen how he's played against great defenders like AD and Rudy Gobert. And quite frankly, like I I said earlier when I was talking about Anthony Davis, there's a lot of players who are afraid to go at a really good defender like him. And even in some aspects with Rudy Gobert, because he's such a good interior defender, a lot of players don't try to challenge him. But Jokic, <laughs> let's be honest, he destroyed them in, in last year's playoffs. If he's in the post, he's just unstoppable. I think maybe you could argue Embiid's a little bit better than Jokic, but I, I would say that Jokic is right there up with Embiid as being a top post player in the NBA. And coupled with that, his ability to play in the pick and pop, where if you decide to have a drop coverage against him, he's going to absolutely destroy you from the top of the key, just shooting at will. So that is, in terms of his offense, is just incredible. But another thing about Jokic that we all know is that he's actually an engine similar to LeBron is, meaning that he himself is what runs the offense and the offense is built around him. He has so many abilities to hurt you, whether it be, again, for himself, to score in the post, or to find an open man, since cheating off of Jokic is essentially a death sentence. And the one thing you can't give up in playoff basketball is easy baskets. And that's what Jokic does. He generates those looks for you, like a LeBron does. And we've been on this podcast time and time again, comparing Jokic's playmaking to someone of LeBron. And a lot of us have said that we might consider him to be the best playmaker in today's NBA. And for those reasons, it's insane. But on top of that, he's just a ridiculously clutch player. We've seen him make big baskets time and time again. So for those reasons, I'm keeping Jokic so high on my list because I just think right now he's having an MVP season and that's going to translate extremely well to the playoffs. So let's drink some warm milk and calm ourselves down. For those who think that Jokic is a greater playmaker than LeBron, (laughs) we need to really chillax on that (laughs) but that being said Jokic is an offensive hub he makes everything around him easier for other players he's elite on that front he actually in the last couple of years progressed into an elite scorer who can score on multiple platforms which makes him extra dangerous um Anishan was talking about the pick and pop. So, I mean, the, the dude can even either shoot over your defense if you drop back or, like, he can legitimately make very easy passes out of the post to guys on the perimeter. 
for like wide open jumpers. So like do has it all on the offensive end. And then to add, he's actually not that bad of a defender. I, I think in earlier years he had he had a reputation as being a piss poor defender, but over the last year and a half, he's become serviceable as a big and at times decent. And if you compound the fact that he had at times a historically great playoff run last year and the man's only 26, to me, that counted for something over someone like Stephen Curry, who's 33 at this point. Eric, to, uh, to your point about the LeBron being a better playmaker than Jokic, I mean, I'm just saying that that's, people can argue that point. I personally think LeBron's a better playmaker than Jokic is. But, I mean, one thing you can't deny is there's two things that Jokic does better than LeBron in terms of passing. One is outlet passing, and two is post-passing. I'd say, like, general playmaking, like if, you have the, if LeBron has the ball in his hands, yes, he's going to generate looks much better than Jokic does in terms of those those things. But... You can't deny that Jokic is an incredible post passer and outlet passer. For me, when I look at Jokic, I find two things of concern. Eric, you mentioned that on defense, Jokic is a serviceable big, right? But when you're a big, there's a different emphasis on defense than if you're a guard. Now, Steph Curry, maybe I'm diminishing his defensive abilities a little bit when I say that he's serviceable on defense. He doesn't make the kind of mistakes that a Dame Lillard or Kyrie would, but at the same time, he's a guard, so it's okay. But if you're a big and you're going up against guys who like to attack the paint, the LeBrons, the Durants, the Embiid's, the Giannis's, the Davises, serviceable is that's just not going to cut it. And I also am concerned about the fact that he is their hub. Because being a hub as a big versus being a hub as a guard, I feel like can be a bit limiting. That being said, I really do like Jokic as a player. I mean, his numbers in the playoff are ridiculous. Did you know that Jokic has a PER of 26.9 in the playoffs? Like, that's impressive. The only player that comes close to that on my list is Luka and Anthony Davis. Everyone else is lower than that. So I respect that. But at the same time, I, I don't hold him higher than, say, Giannis or Chris Paul. And I'll get to that explanation in a bit. But I just feel like the things that concern me about Jokic are also why I have him lower on the list. Though I do believe he is a top 10 player. Spoiler alert. So what's fascinating about Jokic, I'm doing him a disservice on the defensive end. I said he's merely serviceable. As far as advanced metrics go, he's actually near the top of big men in advanced metrics. Like, he has a plus 3.3 defensive real plus minus. He has, as far as when he's on the court with his team, he has a plus 4.4 defensive metric as far as points per game allowed. Like, he's actually fairly good, and he's in the upper 85 percentile as far as overall plus minus on defense relative to other centers. So like saying he's merely serviceable is actually a disservice to him. And I, I think this is one of those situations where someone's national reputation preceded their actual 
now contemporary impact. And we're still catching up as far as their impact with the reputation that preceded them. So I'm not exactly sure that he's somehow detrimental on defense when his team seems to perform better as a defensive unit when he's actually on the floor. Well, my response to that, Eric, is it just goes to the weaknesses of defensive advanced statistics, which are, frankly, the one area where advanced stats have consistently not mirrored what film work shows. For instance, what years and years of data shows that Kawhi Leonard is not so good defensively. But if you ever watch teams play against Kawhi Leonard, it's obvious that he's having a massive impact and take away entire sides of the floor. The problem with Nikola Jokic, and I want to be clear, I think he's an incredible basketball player. I, I think he is arguably the best overall offensive playoff player in the world. And I, I actually think when, you, when you're saying like it was a laughable thing that some of the other, someone could compare his creation ability to LeBron's, I think it's completely debatable. He is that good of a passer. And those of you who know me, passing is something that I really pay attention to and I absolutely love. He makes passes that I've frankly never seen before. He, frankly, he attempts passes that very few people even try, and he can make them. He converts them at ridiculous levels. He's remarkably consistent in the playoffs as well. He's only had an effective field goal percentage below 40% in 6% of his total playoff games played, which is an incredibly low number. Again, that's less than half the amount that even consistent playoff performances like Michael Jordan and LeBron James have had. The only other star player that's anywhere near this is Anthony Davis has also been a very consistent player, as we've already talked about. He's also a very clutch player. He's consistently one of the league leaders in clutch stats. So with me saying all that, why then do I have him only at number eight on my list and not higher? And it's simply because of what I spoke about earlier, about how I'm looking at this, and it's defensive versatility matters. So while the stats may show that they're good defensively when he's on the court, it's because they're running only one kind of scheme, because only one kind of scheme that Nikola Jokic can play. He can't play drop coverage because he can't protect the rim. He can't switch because he has no speed and lateral quickness to really bother people in that situation. If you have Nikola Jokic your team, your, your team is committed to play only one way, which is to usually to trap the ball hard where he can use his size and his really good hands, actually, to deflect passes, right? And, that, and listen, that's a good scheme, and it works against some teams. But if you face the wrong playoff opponent, you will get crushed by that kind of scheme. And that's playoff opponents with guys who can really pass the ball at the point of attack. We mentioned LeBron James. You can't run a trap against him. And the Nuggets tried that at times last year and he killed it, right? So you having a, a limitation like this, being a center makes it really hard for me to imagine a situation where, honestly, that he can be part of a championship team, no matter how great he's offensively. This is such a huge weakness for him. And because he's a center, he's not in a position where even someone like Dirk Nowitzki could at least have Tyson Chandler playing next to him. I'm not sure that with the modern NBA, if he even had another real defensive big man next to him who could block shots, it would matter enough. I think teams could still find ways to attack him. And listen, yeah, he'll be fine if you have a team that he's facing that struggles in this situation, but a lot of teams won't, especially the best teams. So I, I just think that that limitation drops him to eight on my list. If not for that, he would probably be a top three player, you know, honestly. That's how great he is offensively. So it seems like we're like tacitly agreeing with my earlier proposal that he's some type of like average defender. But if we're taking that he's the average defender, 
And he's also a historically great, at it seems like this point, offensive hub of a big man. Does that not count for something in the overall, like, rankings of, like, our top 15? Well, it accounts for something. That's why it's number eight on my list. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that you guys, you know, you and Anu both rank Steph at number seven. All of us agree that Steph is historically a great offensive hub as a guard. And I think we'd all say he's probably about an average point guard as a defender. And just like, if you want to say that Jokic is an average center, that's fine. If they're both average, I'll take the guard over the center because the center being average defensively is much worse than a point guard being average defensively. At the point of attack, there's only so much you can do in the modern pick-and-roll heavy NBA anyway, right? Whereas Jokic, first of all, I I think it's debatable as even an average defensive center. Honestly, if you actually watch this and you listen to people who really watch the film and, and talk about this, his scheme limitations make him less than average, no matter what the numbers say. Because, yeah, you can only play him one way. Like, imagine doing switches. So, what's the big criticism of Steph as a defender? He can't hold up in switches against these big wings, like LeBron or really shifty guards like Kyrie. Well, can Jokic do that? No. So, but Jokic is also not providing you shot blocking. The easy way to look at it is like this. If you have Steph on your team, you can still have the best defense in the NBA. If you have Jokic on your team, you are not going to have a top 10 defense and still not a top 10 playoff defense, period. And that's the difference to me. So keeping with the big men, Eric, you had Joel Embiid pretty high on your list. I had him on my list as well, just not as high as you did. Why was Embiid a factor in your list? If we're assuming all of these guys are going to be healthy, and and I do understand the caveat of factoring in (laughs) the ability to get injured, but I just looked at it as if he's healthy and what he has shown as far as his ability on both ends of the court this year. And I don't know in the Eastern Conference, shit, I don't know who in in the NBA could actually guard him one-on-one or even particularly scheme for him that well with the NBA downsizing. To me, it seemed like Joel Embiid would be some type of matchup nightmare on any decent team in the playoffs. So, that was my logic with having him so high. He's a destructive force on both ends. Well, to answer your question about who can guard him, I will answer that with a smart big. So Al Horford and Marcus Gasol. I know that because I watched them do it in back-to-back playoff series. So, yes. Have you seen Marcus Gasol's corpse? Regardless, man, it's not about that, right? Obviously, I have Joel Embiid on this list. Spoiler alert, he's number nine for me. I don't have him as high because if you just purely look at his numbers, as what's shown there, it's not up to par with any of these other guys that we're talking about. And the reason is not because he doesn't have like the cojones factor or not that he can't rise to the moment for whatever reason. It's just about availability. And one of the most important abilities is availability. It's why I rank Joel under Jokic. And I've been saying this for a long time. It's never been that he's not that guy or can't be that player to elevate in the playoffs. It's just a matter of can he actually play? That's why I have him ranked as low as I do. But when you think about overall play, he's truly dominant on the offensive end. And defensively, he's a legitimate defensive anchor. And you could argue he is 
a defensive player of the year candidate this year for that reason. So while Jokic may be the front runner for MVP, Embiid is arguably the MVP and arguably the defensive player of the year. And I'm not just saying that as a by Sixers fan, because you all know how often critical I am of Joel Embiid. But I don't think that so far he's shown that he truly deserves to be in that, you know, next tier that we're talking about right now until he's able to prove what we've all seen in the playoffs while healthy. And I think that this year will be that. But just using past as precedence, I couldn't in good conscience put Joel Embiid as high as you, Eric, simply for the fact that it's yet to be seen that he can actually be healthy throughout the playoffs and dominate the way that we all know he can. I think when you talk about Joel Embiid, his success this year is going to be a real test to see if a traditional big man can even dominate in the NBA anymore. Because it's been a while before someone's been able to. And in part, that's because of certain rule changes, like the ability to zone out post feeds and things like that, that makes it hard to get the ball in the post. This year, he's adapted his game. He's added more of a face-up game. He's added the ability to you know hit a pretty consistent pull-up jumper, in part because he himself has acknowledged publicly that he sees that it's difficult to get post touches in playoff series. But also, he's right that Joel Embiid has been stopped quite a bit in the playoffs previously. So I've mentioned effective field goal percentage a few times. If you take playoff games played, 35% of games that Joel Embiid has played in his career, he's an effective field goal percentage of 35% or less, which is an atrocious figure. To put that in perspective, that's higher than the likes of Paul George, who has 32% of his games like that, or even someone like Westbrook is only 37%. He's a notorious playoff choker. So we're talking about a guy who doesn't consistently perform in the playoffs. Part of that is his lack of shape. He's been better shape this season. Part of that is, you know, his inability to stay healthy. And that remains to be seen. He actually, even if we are giving him as part of his exercise full health, can he stay healthy throughout a playoff run? That remains to be seen. The other thing is, you guys have mentioned his defensive prowess. And I think he is inarguably an elite rim protector, right? Unlike someone like, say, Nikola Jokic, he's definitely an above average defensive player. And he can be the anchor of your defense. Even still, though, and as we alluded to this before, we talked about Anthony Davis. There are games in which Joel Embiid's limitations, even being a defensive player of the year caliber player, are exposed. There's times where his inability to get out and guard, say, guys who are really deadly three-point shooters is a problem for the Sixers, where they have basically to mostly play drop coverage. He's shown some ability to switch. That's the difference between him and, say, someone like Jokic. He can play a second scheme, but it's still, he's primarily a drop guy. If you remember... In the series against the Raptors, Kawhi killed them over and over again in pick and rolls against Embiid's man, where he had a wide open pull-up jumper. And I've seen that again this year at times. Against a lot of teams, it won't matter. But against the elite teams that have players like that, it might. So I still have him really high on my list. He's my number nine guy right behind Nikola Jokic. But I don't have him quite as high as you do, Eric. And if I might add, two other big issues with Joel Embiid, which is why I don't rank him as high, is that he's extremely turnover-prone. And his offensive numbers across the board go down because he still continues to try to draw fouls instead of just scoring the ball. And in the playoffs, the refs are just not going to call it. So as a result, it ends up in him just kind of flopping and throwing the ball out of bounds. Yeah, I mean, as far as Embiid goes, for a lot of the reasons that Oswe said, he also does rank lower on, on my list. I actually have him at 12. And that's because when I thought about it, for me, Embiid is a great offensive talent. We all know this. I mean, he's a great talent in general on both ends of the floor. 
But his past playoff performances have just been completely horrendous, to be honest with you. He has shown no capability to play out of a double team. Like us, we said, he is a guy who looks for a lot of calls. So he's constantly flailing and like complaining to the refs. Us, we also said it really well. If a good defensive big and a good scheme is in place against Embiid, it's going to be very hard for him to consistently score, but score efficiently, I should add. Another reason why I sort of rank Embiid lower is just because of his conditioning. And I know, also that's something that you've harped on time and time again, because for I know you said it, you can't stand when you see this guy huffing and puffing up and down the court and not being able to play a full playoff game. And let's be real, in the playoffs, your stars have to play big minutes. And if your star player is out of shape and he can't even perform, then what's the point? It, it doesn't matter at, at, at that point. So for me, yes, Embiid has the potential to be very great, but there are a lot of limitations and a lot of ways that he, be, he can become ineffective because of his past playoff performances and his conditioning. So looking at our list so far, Oswe and I both had Giannis in our top seven. And Eric and Anu, you, you didn't have him in top seven. Uh, so I guess first, where is he on your list and why did you put him there relative to maybe somewhere higher on the list like we did. So I ranked Giannis ninth in my list because he, out of all the players I could think of, on one end of the court seems the most schemable against. And in the last two postseasons, he's been the one who's most predictably schemed against in the playoffs. So, I mean, it, it seemed pretty simple to me not to have him any higher than nine, but I'm willing to hear reasons for him being higher on others' lists. Yeah, for me, and this is going to definitely come as a shock to a lot of you guys, but I actually have him at 14 on my list. And it's for the exact same reason that Eric said. It's just that he's the most easy player to scheme against. And we've seen time and time again in the playoffs, Giannis has always come short because he's not able to adapt his game. Once a team decides to wall up, he has no chance. Because, yes, while he is a willing playmaker, a lot of the times he tries to take the responsibilities upon himself. He wants to show to everyone that he can break through these schemes. He can be a Shaq-esque type player and just dominate. But in those regards, teams have become a lot smarter. They've adapted. The coaching has gotten a lot better. And for years, Giannis has just not shown the improvement. I think his playoff skills don't translate well because... He's a player that relies a lot upon the open court to make things happen for him. If a team, He also relies a lot on playing that isolation five out and having a like, full head of steam to go straight to the basket. But once teams decide to close in on that and wall up, he isn't able to do anything. I would say that a lot of his past playoff failures are due in part with his teammates. But again, we're not really factoring in his teammates. We're factoring in Giannis as a player himself. And for those reasons, I just don't think he's in the upper echelon of players. As good as he is defensively, I just don't think his offense is comparable enough to be in that upper echelon. So I totally hear what both you guys are saying. And I put Giannis at number six. And I got to say, I don't feel particularly great about it. But I kind of want to go through why I put him there. To me, it's mostly because I feel like he's been criminally misused in Milwaukee. Like Anthony Davis, I think Giannis is best used as a finisher instead of a creator. I've always wanted to see him used a little bit more like Shaq than as if he's LeBron. He's a devastating finisher on the rim, but far too often 
Buttle give him the ball and wing isos where opponents sag off him, make him a, make a wall against him and dare him to beat him from deep. On a team with an elite guard or wing at creating offense, Giannis would be absolutely devastating. Unfortunately, he's never quite played with a player like that, which is part of the reason for some of his playoff struggles. But I think that divorce from Coach Bud, Giannis would do a lot better. And even, by the way, this year, Coach Bud has shown more willingness to use him more off the ball as a screen setter and role man, and the results have been exemplary so far. So given that this exercise about picking players, kind of putting them on a random team, I think in basically any other team, you actually do better off than in the Bucks for that reason. I do think his playoff struggles are slightly overblown. In the last few years, he's consistently averaged at least 25 points and 12 rebounds and assists. Last year, he had 13.8 rebounds, along with at least five assists in each of those seasons. And he shot, you know, 49.2% in 2019. Not particularly great, but not terrible. 55.9% from the field last year. But clearly, he does have some weakness in his game against good playoff defenses with discipline and talent to build a wall against him, like the 2019 Raptors, the 2020 Heat. He has struggled. As Anu said, teams have kind of dared him to beat them from deep, and so far he hasn't proven that he can often have to punish that strategy. And I am a little bit worried about his playoff free throw shooting, which went from 69.1% in 2018, 63.7% in 2019, to just 58% last year. But all that being said, let's not forget, He's a two-time rating MVP for a reason. And he's also the rating defensive player of the year. He's the kind of player that's so gifted that despite his flaws, it takes an entire team to stop him. And, and that's the part where I kind of disagree with Andrew and Eric's characterization of that he's easy to stop. He's easy to stop by the right team that has an entire team scheme that's with, with a great big man and a bunch of really smart wings who can collapse in and can do that. And also assuming that he himself doesn't have enough support, which he often doesn't have in Milwaukee. If you don't have that entire wall of defense against him and an entire team committed to stopping him, he's capable of single-handedly winning playoff games and series. And even though he's only a 32.5 career three-point percentage shooter and mostly on open shots, that hasn't stopped him from having a solid overall career playoff true shooting percentage of 57.3%, which is pretty impressive, honestly, considering his struggles with free throws. He's just that devastating around the rim. And defensively, because he's such a force, when he switches on to players, which the Bucks have started doing more of, players kind of are almost afraid of attacking him. He can protect the rim as well as anyone as well. In fact, he's just about as good as you can get as a big bet with the exception of someone like AD. And the only real difference between him and AD is, number one, he commits a ton of fouls. He averages an abysmal 3.4 fouls per playoff game in his career. So that's not good if you're trying to stay out there with on difficult matchups. And two, he's not that great running through screens. So you can't use him in every possible scheme the way that you can with AD, but he's still really versatile. You can do everything you possibly want. So as an overall total package, just his sheer dominance makes him kind of difficult to not at least have in your top 10, in my opinion. You basically covered every point I was going to make. And the biggest knock against Giannis as a playoff player, in my opinion, is not Giannis himself, but it's Coach Bud. You put him with a competent coach on a team that's truly built for him. Then I think he will be utterly dominant. And yes, I know. I'm the person who jokingly referred to him as Greek yogurt instead of the Greek freak. Yeah, I'm like 15 podcasts. <laughs> yes, when it comes to him in the playoffs. However, when I think about the series that he got knocked out in, when he was 21.8% from the field against Miami last year or 22.7% against the Raptors the year before, that to me is more reflection on the system that he's been put in. So I don't really hold that too much against him. And knowing what I know of Giannis, 
as a player, he's someone who constantly works and works and works. So I'm confident that we've seen some good signs with Bud this year that he might actually try to coach in the postseason. So what I'm saying is, look, this is a guy who's hungry. He's a guy who has all the skills. And as AC said, entire teams need to scheme against him. So I'm thinking that this is the year that Giannis really shows who he is because he's a two-time MVP, defensive player of the year. We definitely need to throw some respect on that. And if you look at his consistency, he has a reputation of being a playoff choker, but only in 19% of his games did he have an effective field goal percentage of lower than 40%, which is closer to someone like Kevin Durant at 15%. And I had to say someone like a notorious playoff choker like a James Harden who's at 30%, or someone like Paul George at 32%, or Embiid, who I mentioned before, at 35%. So those people have a lot worse playoff success than, than Giannis, who are on some of our lists. What's fascinating to me, it seems as if with Giannis, we're ignoring the fact that in his MVP seasons, that with an increase in minutes in the playoffs, somehow his counting stats went down, which is a very bad indicator for someone in their MVP seasons. But I don't know. Eric, you know, it reminds me a little bit of early career LeBron. I mean, obviously LeBron was a significantly better overall offensive player. But even a LeBron who could hit a three better than Giannis could, or was willing to score a lot more different ways than Giannis could, if you could build a wall against him, there was a way to stop him. And even as recently as, like, say, the 2013 NBA Finals, where the Spurs were sagging on him, it took to, like, game six or seven for LeBron to get it going. That changed as LeBron's shot got more consistent and as he found different ways to read defenses. I don't think that Giannis ultimately should ever be used like LeBron, as I, as I mentioned previously. But there is some hope that with time and with you know more playoff experience and him getting better as a player, which he's been doing, and, and maybe better schemes and maybe ultimately a better coach, that maybe he can improve as well. So I agree about the coach and I agree about the scheme. I, I think he's being underutilized, particularly on the offensive end making him be a facilitator when he's not particularly that great of a passer. That being said, even to compare him to younger era LeBron, in LeBron's playoff years, let's take 2009. His counting stats in that playoffs, he averaged 28 that year. It went up to 35 points per game in the playoffs and his rebounds, his assists, his field goal percentage, everything actually somehow went up. That's not the same parallel with Giannis and an arguably somewhat easier league to score in. I would say inarguably, but yeah, I, I totally agree. That's a great point. Yeah, there's something about like the whole way Mike Brown was misusing LeBron. I just, you know, with, with sort of an under-talented roster around him, that, that kind of reminds me a little bit of it, but I agree, oh, they're yeah, different players. Yeah. Yeah, facts, facts. I, I definitely think both of that's where the parallel lies. Like they both have coaches that I don't think exactly know how to utilize these players that have these like generationally great talents. That being said, I can name a lot of former MVPs who, though they didn't have the right coach, whether that was LeBron with Mike Brown or Michael Jordan with Doug Collins and their MVP winning years when they were in the playoffs, their stats actually increased. They just happened to lose in the playoffs. Giannis plays worse 
<laughs> in the playoffs than he does in the regular season. And that is a giant red flag for me. All right, guys. So keeping with the theme of people that some of us picked, that not all of us picked, I had Luka Doncic as number seven on my list. So I'm curious as to where you guys ranked him and what you think about him. And then I'll got, kind of get into why I had him, where I had him. I'll make it quick. My only reason why I didn't have Luca here, I actually put him 10. And the reason I don't have Luca here is simply because all we have is one year of data, right? And I guess that is a silly argument to make. But at the same time, all we know is how he did last year. I think there is something to be said about the fact that he does lead my list with turnovers per game. And also, he's not a particularly good free throw shooter, which I was surprised to see. So while he is amazing, I'm kind of knocking him a couple notches down just after Joel Embiid as my 10, just because we only have one year of data. Yeah, that was largely my point. I mean, I had him at 11, but I don't have a, a large sample size on him. I, I think the world of Luka, and I can conceivably be in the mindset that... <laughs> Though I have him 11 now, after this playoffs, depending on how he performs, I could have him within my top seven or eight. So this, I can legitimately say, this isn't any type of apprehension about what Luca will become more than it's just, he's young, so I just want to see him for another year. Oh yeah, I I totally want to make that same clarification that Eric did. It has nothing to say about his actual ability. I just want to give guys who've been in the league a little bit longer their dude, and that's why I bumped him down and put CP3 in his place. Yeah, I'm on board with Eric completely because I think me and him both have him. At, I think Eric, you said 11, right? Facts. Yeah, so I also have him at 11. And similarly, for the same reasons that you guys have him, he was fantastic in last year's playoffs. I mean, shit, he was averaging a near 30-point triple-double. But again, it's it's a small sample size, so it's hard to really be like, can he continuously have crazy numbers like that? And, you know, who's to say? But one thing that was really interesting is how deadly of a scorer he proved to be against an incredible Clippers defense with Kawhi and Paul George leading the helm, who are both great defenders in their own right. So it, it is pretty incredible he was able to be so effective. To me, he's like this weird amalgamation of like Larry Bird and like LeBron in some ways, with his ability to, like, shoot and be creative with the ball, but also, like, get to the rim and finish at the rim. Not Maybe not with the same level of athleticism as LeBron, but, you know, being crafty, finishing at the rim. Honestly, just incredible to see because he has the things you want in a playoff performer because he has all those transferable skills, being able to take and make very difficult shots. He is, like, the primary playmaker for his team. But there are limitations. Again, he is a very poor defender. But he does have the size, which kind of helps him in those regards. But as us, we also said, and it's very important, is that he's a very high turnover player. And being a very high turnover player in playoff basketball where possessions are very important is a big thing. So you need to really cut down on that. So let's see what Luca can really do. But for those reasons, again, I'm on board with Eric here, number 11 for me. So I hear all you guys. And I, I hear that you know he only has one year. Well, here's my take on it. That one year wasn't enough for me to see everything I need to know about this dude. This man went up against Patrick Beverly, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard and gave them the business. They could not stop him. Even when Porzingis got hurt, 
You know, Porzingis got ejected. Luka Magic came to play. And Anu made an excellent comparison between him and LeBron James. In so many ways, he reminds me of LeBron. The way that he controls the game, the way that he is maybe not as good of a shooter as his, you might think otherwise, but it doesn't really make a difference because he can get to the rim whenever he wants to with this combination of guile, of strength, of controlling the pace. He controls the tempo of the game absolutely perfectly. And he's such a good finisher on the rim that you basically have to make sure that you sell hard to him when he gets in the paint, which he does all the time, which leaves him the ability to make passes. And this guy can pass as good as anyone in the league. If the best passers in the NBA are the likes of Jokic or LeBron or Harden, well, this guy is right up there with any of them and is arguably better than them. I mean, that's the kind of level of passing that Luka brings to the table. And I'm not concerned about his defense. I think his defense is is fine. You know, he's a below average defender for his position, but he's a wing guy. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like you can conceivably build a team around him with great defenders at all of the positions and he will make them all better offensively. He just got every single thing I want in a, in, a, in a player. And lest I forget how clutch he is, the guy consistently has proven that in the playoffs last year, he made a massive shot, right? And I get it. Statistically, maybe he hasn't made every single shot, but he's taken the clutch. I don't care. He can get off a shot whenever he wants to. And that alone is a unique ability. And overall, when I talked about how I'm going to weigh all the factors about a given player's playoff potential, the ability to generate elite offense is number one. And if you couple that with everything else he brings to the table and the fact that even being below average, he's only a wing defender, not something more important like a center. That's why I have him at number seven over even someone like Nikola Jokic, who has a more proven track record, but unfortunately plays the center position where his weaknesses are more exposed. So my only issue with what you said, AC, Doncic performance against the Clippers, though it was phenomenal, the very next round, a guy who, though very good, he's not like near the player that Doncic is. He gave those two guys, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, fits as well. And I'm talking about Jamal Murray. So I'm not exactly sure how to gauge that playoff series. It seemed as if he might have been in the perfect storm of events with a team that needed new management, needed a new coach, and had two guys in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George who hadn't quite offensively nor defensively figured out how to coexist in a playoff situation with each other. I think it's very fair. I would argue that the way that Luka beat them was different than the way that Jamal beat them. So Jamal was beating them in pick-and-roll situations where you get a threat of Jokic running around and it was drawing a ton of attention and also he's a a tiny shifty guard as opposed to a wing that these guys are more commonly matched up against whereas Luka was just flat out beating them in isolations over and over again they're even running a pick sometimes he was just beating him off the dribble it was incredible so I I agree the overall it's fair for you guys to think that I'm jumping the gun a little here but listen if you look at his regular seasons he's probably a top seven or so player and in the one year we saw him in the playoffs, he played like a top seven player. So that's why I have him at number seven. Speaking of guys that some of us have, but other people don't, at least in our top seven, Oswe, you had Chris Paul as your number seven player. So tell us why you had him there and we'll tell you where we have him on our list. Well, the reason why I have Luca where I have him and the reason why I have Chris Paul the way I have is because of just number of years doing it, right? 
I think it's important to recognize how good Chris Paul has been throughout the years and continues to be today. Let's not forget the Thunder almost beat James Harden's Rockets last year. If only that happened, that would have been beautiful. Right? (laughs) He takes a team that no one thought has any business going to the playoffs and he makes them a contender in the West. Then this year he goes to the Suns and they're the number two seed. So at some point, are we going to finally recognize that Chris Paul truly is as great as he's been showing us year in and year out? Now, obviously, one big concern, because we are talking about playoffs, is, well, Chris Paul has a history of getting injured in the playoffs. And yes, a little bit of choking. But when you look at his numbers, I mean, they don't lie. The man has, of all the people on my list, he has one of the lowest turnover ratio which as a point guard who's dishing out eight assists per game, that's pretty good. He averages over 20 points per game, eight assists. He has a true shooting percentage of 58.1. From three, he's 36.5. Field goal, he's 47.8. Steals, he's 2.1 steals a game. That's the highest of anyone on my list. And he also has a pretty high box plus minus of 7.4. It's one of the highest that I have. It's comparable to Anthony Davis, actually. And I'll never forget watching series where he would be the one guarding Kevin Durant and he'd be bothering Kevin Durant because he just has that leverage under him. So not only is he able to make the people around him better, he does it extremely efficiently and he's not causing any turnovers. But then on the defensive end, he is one of the best defensive players despite being only six or six one. So look, while... You could make an argument that Jokic, Embiid, and Luka should all be above Chris Paul on my list. My argument is he's still this good, and he's been doing it for like twice, if not more years than any of these guys. Right. So on my list, I actually have him at 15, the very last spot. And again, CP3 is is fantastic. Like like you said, Oswe, he's a very efficient, low turnover prone player. And when he does take the floor, he's usually very effective. And again, even to be in a conversation with this many players in the playoffs and players even outside of the top 15, it's it's incredible that he can make a list. I'm, I'm assuming he's made everyone's list, if not, or even he's just outside of the peripheries of, of 15. But either way, like it's incredible he's around that mark anyway. But again, we're talking about the playoffs here, right? And us, we like you've always said, the greatest ability is availability. So when the games really mattered the most, he vanished just like Aang. So it, it, it's just like, to me, when I think of Chris Paul, yes, when he's playing, he's he's great, but you can't consistently rely on him to play. For those reasons, he's never even gotten out of the Western Conference for how many years he's been able to make it to the playoffs. And yes, you can argue the West is a, a goddamn madhouse. There's so many incredible teams that he's had to go up against. But again, in situations where he was up in the, in a series, when he was with the Clippers, when he was with the Rockets, and they had a chance to close out some of those games. He just wasn't even there to play. So for those reasons, I have to put Chris Paul a bit lower. I'm completely aligned with you, Anu, on a lot of what you said there. Understand that Chris Paul is one of my favorite all-time basketball players. He's the point god. He controls pace beautifully. You know, earlier we had a bit of a debate about guards and how average defenders or below average defenders could, you know, make an impact. Chris Paul is an elite point guard defender. He, even at this age, is capable of switching on to bigger player and bothering them. He's a complete pest. He's one of the greatest ever at 
stopping a two-on-one fast break by baiting the person to make a pass other guy and then just jumping that passing lane and taking that steal. He's incredible. I love him so much. He's really clutch. Contrary to his reputation, he's actually been one of the great playoff players. You look at every advanced stat that there is. But the ultimate problem with Chris Paul is he just hasn't proven that he could be healthy for entire playoff runs. And every round that he gets further, it seems that his risk of injury increases dramatically. So even if we're giving him full health at the start of the playoffs, I don't have faith in him, unlike a lot of these players, to actually make it through an entire playoffs healthy. And that's why I have him only as 13 on my list. Although, if it comes to my favorite players here, it'd be a hell of a lot higher. You know what's wild about this? I thought I was slandering him by putting him at 10. And I didn't realize that actually I was giving him some type of exaltation that I didn't mean for him to have. But I'll just keep him where I have him. Chris Paul is one of these interesting players where a lot of what we think of him I feel is outside the real-time like application of his resume meaning like I've heard people say that oh he's a winner wherever he goes well where's Chris Paul won at he didn't win in college he hasn't won in the NBA. Like, when he was with Wake Forest, the thing we know him most for is punching Julius Hodge in the nuts. So it's like... Classic it's like, moment. Yeah, like, what do we know you as a classic winner for? Like, it makes no damn sense. But, of course, like AC said, dude is the point god. Incredible, incredible player at... The simple point guard religious litmus test of does this guy run a team as if he's a general on a battlefield? Yeah, Chris Paul does that, but I'm not sure if you put Chris Paul on a team with (laughs) talent commiserate to any of the other upper echelon elite guys that he's going to win above them because I would have no evidence to tell me that it would actually happen. So, I mean, he gets credit for taking the Phoenix Suns to what they are, but I think it can be argued much how it could be argued with Blake Griffin before Devin Booker that he's kind of also had the luck of the draw to get on these guys' teams when they're hitting, like, out of year three or four, and they're getting into their mid-20s, which is usually the start of most NBA guys' prime. So I I don't know. Chris Paul's a dope player, but I'm not going to do some type of circle jerk, so maybe um, my (laughs) assessment of his place was a little too high. Well, in defense of Chris Paul and his lack of winning, as you said, the difference that I think people need to look at Chris Paul's career with is when he was in New Orleans, who was he competing with? What was he competing against? When he's with the Clippers, are you telling me that with Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan as a supporting cast that he was going to beat the Heat or the Spurs? And they weren't even healthy half the time, obviously to your point. Exactly. No, that's a good that, that's, never. So now that's a great that's a great point, but also I don't think they got out of the second round. Well let's also not forget he had Glenn as his coach, so Glenn was also part of <laughs> Glenn it, <right>? Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't even called the man Doc. 
calls him Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> Just a reminder for those of you who may not have known, I refer to Doc Rivers as Glenn Rivers because now he's a coach in Philadelphia and there's only one Doc in Philadelphia and that's Dr. J. So, yes. So I, I blame Glenn for part of the failures of the Clippers in those years. But let's move forward. Have you guys forgotten that his Rockets team went to the Western Conference Finals and almost beat the overpowered Warriors multiple times? Like, yes, he got injured and also Harden completely forgot how to play basketball. And the Rockets as a whole missed a historic number of three-pointers in some of those games. Is that really on him? He is someone who has been a victim of a lot of very unfortunate circumstances. And yes, his own personal health is an issue, but under this exercise, he's going to be on a team that is probably competent, has a supporting cast that is good and not injury prone, and has a coach that's better than Glenn is. And he's not going to be facing some super team warriors or arguably super team Miami Heat, although I don't think they're quite the level of super team. So that's why I think people love to say that he hasn't won or done anything, but look at what he faced. Look at what he had to work with. That's all I'm saying. To your, to your point, Oswe, you can be a winner without winning a championship. I, I think those things should be divorced from each other because he has won and exceeded expectations in a lot of places he's been to. But that being said, the biggest thing holding his teams back, the single thing that consistently undid his teams, there were times where clearly Blake got hurt or DeAndre got hurt or various other things happened. But really, it's that he himself couldn't stay healthy often enough. And he's had a couple of shaky playoff moments as well, even though I think overall he's a very good playoff player. So he has been, whether you can say it's his fault or not, a contributing factor to some of those losses, which is why he's lower on my list. But let's move on, guys, to the last person that's only on one of our lists, at least in the top seven. And that's Anushan picking Kyrie as the number six guy on his list, which is, well, <laughs> quite frankly, very high. So I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious on why you have Kyrie this high. And I'm going to be honest, I don't even have him on my list. So I, maybe you can persuade me. I, I am open for persuasion as to why I should at least have him on my list. Yep, he's not on my list either. Oh, wow. I thought I, thought I was the only one. That's interesting. Well, Go I mean, it, I, I have him at like 13. Okay, so. okay. Well, I mean, Eric, you can explain after I, I finish with this. But let, let me just go through with it real quick. So for me, right, like I, I really value guys who are able to step up in the biggest of moments. And we can't talk about clutch shot making without mentioning Kyrie and his incredible performance in the 2016 playoffs against the Golden State Warriors, who had one of the best defenses of their time. In limited games, he has very good statistics for when he does play. And for a guy who takes and makes some of the most difficult shots you'll ever see, he doesn't shoot as awful as you actually might think. He actually sits at a 51% effective field goal percentage. And again, we're talking about a guy who's around that 6-1-6-2 mark taking really, really difficult shots. Furthering that, again, with the difficult shot making that I was talking about, AC, you also said this when we were talking about the rules and what or at least what we value. And it's having a guy who can get you a bucket when you most need it. A guy whose offensive capabilities are just so incredible that they kind of overshadow the defensive liabilities that he might provide. He's as good of an offensive player as they come. He can get to the rim. And importantly, he gets to the rim without relying on drawing fouls, which is very important for playoff basketball because 
again, the, like you said, AC, the the refs don't really blow that whistle. They're very tight with it. He has a very potent mid-range pull-up, and he has a great pull-up from three, which are all great skills to have in the playoffs. And again, I will say this. I can see why anyone would put Stephen Curry over. And after we sort of talked about it, I do want to make that shift and put Curry above Kyrie because I, I do think when looking at it in the grand scheme of things, the defense really does matter. But I think his absurd scoring ability just outweighs so much of his defensive liabilities that it's very hard to scheme against him because switching is a no-go. You can't drop against him because he can just hit all those mid-range pull-ups and even three-point pull-ups. So for those reasons, I'm actually going to change my list around and actually put him at seven and put Curry at six. But I do think Kyrie's offense is just so important for playoff basketball. I gotta say, that's a pretty persuasive case using my own criteria when I, when I talk about what I'm weighing against me. Uh, it, it, it actually was, oddly enough, which I wasn't expecting. So he made a good case for him. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, after listening to you, audio, I think I'm going to revise my list and kick off my number 15 person and, and put in uh, Kyrie Irving. My 15 person was a bit of a reach anyway, to be honest with you. So I think I would have Kyrie as my 15th guy. So I'm not putting me higher than that because I do think he's a guy who played three years with LeBron James. And yes, his numbers are great on those years. The only year we've seen in the playoffs without LeBron James, his playoff true shooting percentage went down from 57% where he was all three years he played with LeBron to a miserable 48%, which is absolutely terrible. And he frankly quit on his Celtics team in multiple different ways in that playoffs. I wanna, I'm going to weigh that a little bit against him. I think he is a, a really poor defender. One of the worst defenders in the NBA in terms of willingness to go through a screen. There are moments where he plays a little bit harder. And you said he was six, but he's actually more like six three. So he's he's got a little bit of size relative to other point guards, but he doesn't really use that anyway defensively. That being said, the reason I think I'm persuaded by you a little bit, at least to put him on my list at number 15, is that Kyrie is an incredible offensive player when it comes to playoff basketball. He does not depend on free throws. He kind of is a scheme buster. He is one of the great all-time isolation players, which is valuable for playoffs. So I don't think he could be the number one option on your team. I'm not even really convinced he could truly be a number two option on your team unless your number one option is like a god-tier all-time player like a LeBron or maybe it'll happen this year with Kia, although I guess this year it'll be the third option behind Harden as well. So he might even end up winning the championship, but it might simply be because he's on a stacked team that he is. But I, I do think he probably deserves to be somewhere on my list. So I have him about as low as he can go on the top 15 at number 15 now after my revision. So what's wild about this is we shamed Anishan into changing his ranking. But Anishan shamed, <laughs> shamed you yeah, into putting Kyrie onto your list. That's so true. I, I, I love this this recip like reciprocative relationship going on here <laughs> where we make each other feel bad about our selections and then we're like okay you're right and I'm right but we're both wrong <laughs> awesome this is this is great shit I, I mean it's awesome I, I love it I love it so as a person who actually had Kyrie on their list <laughs> like Amishan before AC decided to be a craven and, and put him on his. But anyway. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> so Kyrie, I, I think to encapsulate Kyrie, 
Kyrie made that huge shot in Game 7 against the Warriors to go up by 3. Before that, I, I, I would be remiss not to point out, the 7 preceding points to even tie the game up were all LeBron James. And Kyrie had missed like 5 or 6 straight shots before that. Straight. So, to me, that is the perfect like crystallization of Kyrie. In moments, Kyrie can be incredibly big, but you have what happened with the Celtics where they were demonstrably better in the playoffs, even while he was on the roster the first year where he missed the playoffs and they they got fairly significantly further than they got the second year where he played in the playoffs and he was their leader. So, I mean, AC has largely already said this, but if you have Kyrie as your second best player and you have a generational talent next to him, then yes, Kyrie can win as your second best player. But optimally, you want him as your third best guy in the modern NBA with a like crap ton of talent like this team that he's on with the Nets has now. And that's his like optimum role. So to me, that that falls somewhere between like 12 and 15 uh, players I would like to have in the playoffs. But I don't think it's exactly crazy that someone would be like, you know, if I was making a team right now and I had 15 options, Kyrie wouldn't be one of them. I mean, I wouldn't want Kyrie as one of my leaders. So there's that. I, I think he's a head case and a half. But that's Kyrie. He's like Bill Simmons always said, a classic table setter guy. He'll put a lot of things on a table. He'll also take a shit ton of stuff off the table. But you have to pick and choose what's most operative for you. So also, you did not have him on your list either. And unless you're a craven like me, as Eric said, you'll keep him off your list. So why do you not have him on your list? If I'm being 100% honest, I actually forgot about Kyrie Irving. I think that's even worse. <laughs> he was even a player. <laughs> that, that is somehow a bigger son than the fact that we consciously left him off. He's not important to you enough to even come into your thoughts. That's crazy. <laughs> All I will say is it was a moment of absent-mindedness that I am now regretting. So are you saying you're now putting him on your list? I am, but... Hmm. Oh, just call me. You can call Honestly. me the lawyer over AC over here. I'm yes. convincing everyone. Yes. Hey, hey, Oswe, we thought you were the chosen one. You were supposed to defeat the Sith, not join them. <laughs> well, let me say this, all right? Given that I forgot to even put him in consideration for this, and I put someone else on the list that I don't really want to take off, I will just say, you know what? Hey, man, I forgot to put him on the list. So I'm not going to add him to the list. I will not stoop as low as that. But but I will say, Kyrie Irving, after doing what he did in the 2016 finals, he gets a pass from me on basically everything. I mean, that finals was amazing. And watching him play was so much fun. And that shot over Curry, the shot itself. Oh, yeah. Kyrie Irving is a big game player. Any team is lucky to have him on their playoff team. So much love to Kyrie, but I got to stick with my list. So I'm sorry, buddy. I couldn't get you on it. Maybe next time. 
I'm sure he's losing a lot of sleep over that, not being on a Swiss list. Also, we have a, a, a odd relationship to Kyrie Irving because we know someone who, well, used to date his ex. So it's like always been odd when it comes to Kyrie Irving and our opinions on it. Wait, are we talking about his baby, like someone dated his baby mama? No. no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long story. Let me just confirm to everyone that that is not part of my consideration in forgetting Kyrie for this. It had nothing to do with it. With that, I think that's the perfect place to stop. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please like, follow, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our website at brownmanwontjump.com. If you'd like to reach out to us, send us an email at brownmanwontjump at gmail.com. We'll catch you in the next one for part two of our top 15 NBA players for this year's playoffs. Take care, guys.